0: We're glad that you're with us tonight for our Wednesday night Bible study. We are concluding tonight our summer series. It's hard to believe. It's been three months going through this, but uh, we have greatly enjoyed the lessons so far this summer. Uh, the overall theme, Where is God? And and uh, speakers have done a tremendous job. We know tonight will be just the same. And one of the things we've mentioned a little bit here and there, and speakers have mentioned, I noticed Justin mentioned it last week, I listened to the recording of that, is you know kind of the... Up and down as far as the emotions of the lessons, some of them very encouraging, and some been like, "Ooh, this is tougher stuff." We wanted to end with something it's it's impossible not to be encouraged by, uh, and so tonight's subject is, "Where is God when I get to heaven?" And we are pleased that Chris Kemp is with us from Northside in Mayfield, and just a wonderful gospel preacher. Most of us know him, and uh, some of us remember. I believe it was two years ago he spoke at our teacher appreciation banquet. Did a wonderful job encouraging us there. And we know tonight he will as well, not just with this lesson, but also with finishing up this series. And we hope all these lessons have encourage you throughout the summer. Let's take a moment and pray together, and then we'll turn the time over to Chris to present the lesson, Where is God when I get to him? Our Father, we thank you for the day with which you've blessed us. We thank you for the opportunity to pause in the middle of our week, to consider your word, to be encouraged by it, and to learn things that will help us be more faithful. Father, we're thankful that in your word you've told us about heaven. Help us to long for a home there. Help us to live in such a way that uh, we seek to please you in all ways and help us to uh, be penitent when we fail to live up to the things that you have uh, given us in your word to obey. Father, I'll be with Chris tonight and for his uh, study and his preparation. We're thankful for his faithfulness to your word. We're very grateful. Help us as listeners to, uh, to hear and to obey what your word says. And Father, please be with every teacher who's teaching our children tonight as well, and those classes help them to be an encouragement. And please help everything that's taught in this in this building tonight to be according to Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Good evening, brethren. It is good to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity to study from God's word together Revelation chapter 4 the assigned text so that's where we're going to camp out tonight so please turn in your new testaments to the Revelation chapter 4 I enjoyed a magnificent feast with Miss Bonnie Lacey, it was a feast second to none not one single moment did I ever think that she resented the hospitality it reminds me of the story of the little boy that was helping his mama get ready for Sunday dinner, inviting the preacher over. And so when it got time to eat, the mother said, All right, Junior, you go ahead and ask the blessing at this time. And he said, Well, Mama, what should I say? Well, just say what you hear me say. So he bowed his head and he said, Mercy, why did I invite this buzzard over here to eat anyway? <laughs> well, I didn't feel like a buzzard at tonight, I guarantee you. I have eaten sufficiently. It was just fantastic. <clears throat> Song leader got up at church one Sunday and said we're going to sing the song take time to be holy But because of time restraints we will only sing the first verse I'm thankful that we can take time to be holy and we don't have to rush through and only do a one verse Synopsis of it. We can just sink our teeth into it a little bit and relax and enjoy the meat of God's word again Thank you for the privilege being able to study together. I'm glad to be here. It's an honor to be here once. It's a double honor to be invited back. So thank you for that. Revelation chapter 4 beginning in verse number 1. After this I looked and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard were as it were a sound of a trumpet saying to me, come up here and I'll show thee things which must be hereafter. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, there was a throne set in heaven and one sat on that throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And in the midst of the throne there were four and twenty seats. And upon those seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting. They had on white raiment and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. And out of the throne there was a, it says before the throne, a, a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne, it said there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast was like a calf, some of the translations. As a matter of fact, most of them say ox. The third beast had the face of a man and the fourth beast like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings and they were full of eyes within. And they rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those four beasts gave the honor and glory and thanks unto Him that sits on the throne who lives forever, it says the four and the twenty elders fell down before the throne and worshipped Him who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Now I want us to begin tonight by looking at some frustrations that we have as we try to study apocalyptic literature. Imagine if you were born deaf and blind, and you had never heard and you had never seen, and someone went through the arduous task of teaching you sign language. And that is the only form of communication that you knew. Imagine the, difficult, the difficulty of explaining harmony and melody and music. Imagine the difficulty of conveying to such a person the, the beauty of the Grand Canyon. Uh, the vastness of the ocean and of the blue skies overhead. Uh, the glory of mountaintop peaks. I would like to suggest to us, it would be easier to adequately convey all of these things to someone who was born blind and deaf than it would be to explain a dimension called heaven that we don't have the capacity really to understand. I'm 50 years old, and I can understand the measuring stick of 50 years, but trying to explain eternity to someone that doesn't have the computer hardware or a measuring stick to gauge that Is a monumental task for sure. Apocalyptical literature is accommodative language. It is exaggerated and accommodative language that's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be so exaggerated that it defies sense. I think about the hub of the Bible chapter, Acts chapter 2. Of course, we all know repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38. But just a few verses prior to that glorious Acts 2.38 passage is verse number 20. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now if we try to understand apocalyptic literature, even found in like the hub chapter of the Bible, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 20, we're going to really be setting ourselves up for a lot of disappointment. The earth... Is not going to witness the sun going dark, and and a trillion times trillion-ton rock that orbits the Earth called the Moon is not going to start seeping blood. That is not what that means. Imagine if you were a foreigner and you're trying to learn the English language, and you come over here and talk to one of us, and we say we're going to let the cat out of the bag, training cats and dogs, kill two birds with one stone beat around a bush, and a host of other little colloquialisms and figures of speech, people are going to be very confused. Are they talking about rob Peter to pay Paul, that that somebody's held Peter up at gunpoint? No, none of these things actually mean what they say, thus apocalyptic literature. And so, when we try to study what heaven is going to be like, I feel like, I would be remiss if I didn't begin by admitting my own frustration and aggravations because I wasn't raised speaking apocalyptically. And neither were you. And so we have this very strong frustration because we don't know what each and every one of these symbols mean. This almost at times gross exaggeration, accommodative language is trying to make something so far-fetched that the result is, wow, that's going to be great. Just like Acts chapter 2 and verse number 20. The sun's not actually going to be dark and the moon is not actually going to be turned to blood. It means there's going to be something great to happen before the day of the Lord comes. And so that's the the feeling that we should get. We should feel overwhelmed when we read about heaven in this apocalyptic literature. We should feel overwhelmed and we should say, wow. And if we try to make each individual thing literal, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. It says that, for example, I think of three, and I don't like the word contradiction because that almost has such a strictly negative connotation, but there are three impossibilities. How do you like that? There are three impossibilities in this apocalyptic chapter itself. It says of these beasts, And these elders that they do not rest day and night forever. Well, you've read Revelation 21. There is no night there. (laughs) There is no day and night in heaven. That's an impossibility. So why does it say they worship the Lord day and night forever? Because there is no day and night forever in heaven. There is no night in heaven. Why this impossibility? It's accommodative language. To try to help us understand what well, we don't really even have the capacity to understand. Worship will always be given unto God. The next one I think about is when it speaks of how there are seven spirits of God. Are there really seven Holy Spirits? Come on churches and in the cemetery, talk to me. Are there really seven Holy Spirits? No, there are not seven Holy Spirits. It's accommodative language. Uh, there's glass and there's ricochet and glitter. A little child can't wait to go to Dollar Tree. Probably it'll be turned into a $2 tree, by the way. But a child wants to go to the Dollar Tree. There's glitter. There's bling bling. There's all this stuff. If we get focused on the bling bling and miss the point, then certainly we've missed the point. God is there. He's on the throne. That's what really counts. And so, if you take all of this glass and all of this bling bling and all these shiny crystals and everything... And and you have seven burning spirits of God. You could imagine it looked like a disco ball. It looked like seven disco balls in the place. Now don't try to make that literal, but it's wanting to overwhelm us. Mission accomplished. When we think about all of the seemingly impossibilities and uh, things that just defy logic, again, we get very frustrated with apocalyptic literature. So I am admitting my own frustration, my inability. first time I took a job. I was still a full-time student at Freed Hardman. But James Tollerson, he's in glory now. But Brother James Tollerson was in placement. And Brother James came to me one day, one of the Bible teachers, And he said, hey, look, there's a congregation way out in Carroll County, Tennessee. They, about an hour and 15 minutes from campus, they need a preacher. Would you go out there and be their preacher? I said, I would love to. And so the men of the church, they interviewed me. They hired me. I still... A student full time, but I drive out there. Angela and I would drive out there, and 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 the first series they wanted me to teach was what? The Book of Revelation, and I remember saying many times in that series, I don't know, and I have studied the Book of Revelation for a lifetime. And you know what? <laughs> I'm still saying the same thing. There are so many times I read about these symbols and they don't make sense to me. They just overwhelm me. Wow me. But I don't know. And usually there's some dingling somewhere that stands up and says, oh, I know everything and I've got all these signs figured out and I know whatever one of these symbols mean and I just know it all. Lay down before you hurt yourself. (laughs) But I don't want to just talk tonight about what we don't know. I feel it was necessary to do that for a few moments. But what I would like for us to accomplish together tonight is to talk about what we do know. And what we do know is that God is on the throne and this beautiful, overwhelming picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 4 is not a picture of what will be. It is a picture of what is. God is on the throne. That's usually when you say "Amen." God is on the throne. God is being worshipped right now. I know the the trumpet type overwhelming. You speak to me on the sound of trumpet. Yeah, that's going to be very, very, very loud and overwhelming to me. I know the overwhelming voice had come up here and I'll show you things which must be here after. But it's talking about those seals. It's talking about the history as it would be unfolded. But chapter 4 and chapter 5 really, they go hand in hand. That is what heaven is right now. Right now God is on the throne. And right now God is being worshipped. Those who serve our Lord tirelessly render unto Him their worship and their devotion around the clock. Go to the Old Testament book. Of Psalm 90. There's a verse in Psalm 90. That I think speaks to this subject. Psalm 90 and in particular verse number 2. Where it talks about before the mountains were ever formed. Or ever thou hast formed. He said this earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. God is outside of time. God is to Him one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is to God like one day. God is seated on the throne. And if you were John and you were a part of that persecuted first century, you would understand that Roman emperors claimed to be divine. Roman emperors claimed to be worshipped. There was so much wrong in their society. People were being taken advantage of. Jesus taught us to prioritize the least of us. He taught things like service and humility were not bad things, but rather these are great things, and if you want to be great, then you'll pursue these types of things. And so John lived in a very difficult world where it looked like so many times that evil was going unchecked, that evil was abounding and evil was winning. And the point that is so beautiful to John and to us of any age where we feel like we are at times isolated and we want to be insulated, and that's what the church is, insulation, not isolation, but there's moments at, at work, in school, or wherever we go, we feel isolation rather than insulation. We feel ostracized. We feel like we're the oddball out. We're the sore thumb that sticks out. We feel like nobody likes us. In those moments of crisis, it is good to remember God is on the throne. And He is being worshipped tirelessly with all of the heart and with all of the soul. God is worthy and deserving of all of our praise. Lord God Almighty. It is interesting that he records here that there was a door open in heaven. Uh, there's no locks in heaven. Don't need locks in heaven because the bad stuff doesn't get there. And so there is a door opened in heaven. Does say anything about a lock? And, and this loud voice and Come up here. A child may get a toy at Christmas and go, na 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 nah, 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 and taunt his friends with his toy. Whatever it is. It could be something as big as the big wheel. You name it. Sometimes children will taunt others, look at what I have. But heaven isn't revealed unto us to taunt us. Heaven is revealed as accommodative as God can be. Heaven is revealed to us to say, this is yours. I have it all and I'm going to give it all to you. We are children of the King. When Christ Died on the cross. Father God gave Jesus the great gift that He had deserved, the great gift that He earned. Father God's gift to Jesus' faithfulness, His reward to Jesus for His faithfulness in dying on the cross was you and me. We are the gift of Father God to Jesus Christ. We are the redeemed and we belong to Him. What a blessing that is. And so the voice in that loud, robust, thunderous voice said, Come up here. And and you're going to see history unfolded, but right now I want you to see what is. Heaven is real. Heaven is not some far off distant place. We think of heaven as being a different country. Okay, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, they look for a different country. I, I, I get it. But I want to challenge us to stop thinking of heaven as being 10,000 miles away. God is here. I wish that we could open our eyes and see that God is not far away from us. If we could see as God could see. If we could know as God would know, how different would our prayers be? How different might our treatment of other people be as well? And so he says, "Come up here. I want to show you some things that must." I like that word "must" for a couple of reasons. We live in a world where situation ethics and people want to say, "Well, right's not always right, and wrong's not always wrong." You read Isaiah five twenty: "What well, to them to the call evil good and good evil, uh, put bitter for sweet and sweet bitter." We live in a world like that, and God is a God of absolutes. He says, "Come up here, and I will show you things which must." God is a God of absolutes. And you begin to see, this is that third impossibility. Uh, the throne looks like a rainbow, pure green. Now when I was growing up, we learned Roy G. Bibb. Does anybody in here know what Roy G. Bibb stands for? Roy G. Bibb stands for what? Colors of the rainbow. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. I never missed that on my test. Once my teacher taught me, Roy G. Biv, I got it for life. But it says the throne of God looks like a rainbow, pure green. Well, I'm sorry, I don't get that. Because what happened to Roy and the Biv part? (laughs) Where'd the red go? If it's pure green, where'd the red go? And so, again, rather than trying to make literal and actual each one of these, at times grossly exaggerated accommodative words and pictures, look at the fact that God is on the throne. They were being persecuted then. God is on the throne. Do you know what single verse in the Old Testament is the most often cited, quoted, referenced, and alluded to verse in the entire New Testament? Anybody know that? Who said, raise your hand there. Psalm 110, which says, quote it brother. Amen. Psalm 1. Job well done, brother. And so that is the most cited, alluded, referenced, and quoted verse in the New Testament. You look at how it talks of the glory of God being there. One of the verses we know by heart, because it speaks to us and it it reprimands us, but it is Romans 3.23. All have sinned and what? Come short of what? The glory of God. All have sin- it doesn't say all have sinned and come short of the grace of God. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is glorious. He is glory. You think about all the times when Jesus would... Matthew 25, for example. Matthew 19, 28 is another one, for example. Twenty five thirty one. 25, 31... 1928. All of these times, Jesus in these parables, he talks about how when the Son of Man will come, he will sit on the throne of his glory. His throne is glorious. We've been invited unto the throne of that glory. Come up here. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come unto me. Just like John heard, come up here. That's what God's saying to all of us. What's the purpose of the gospel? Open the door and come up here. I don't want you just to be in spirit. I want you to be here really one day. But come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Christianity is a, a, an education. And learn of me. Uh, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is meek. Jesus is lowly. Jesus is humble. And so the first lesson aside from some of the the frustrations of the literature and its nature, the first lesson that we get, no matter what we are going through in life, it's good to remember, God is on the throne, and He is being worshipped every moment of every day. And the second lesson, and these are the two lessons that I get out of Revelation chapter 4, and the second lesson that I get is... My life should be a Revelation chapter 4. The picture we see in Revelation chapter 4. All worship to Him who sits on the throne. All glory, all praise, all honor, all worship, all casting of your crowns before His feet. Everything that we read about in Revelation chapter 4 about how He is enthroned, He is extolled, He is praised. My life should do the same thing. My life should look like Revelation chapter 4. Everybody that works with me, everybody that goes to school with me, everybody that knows me, everybody that's kin to me, everybody that's friends with me, everybody that's in the same civic club that I'm in, everybody that knows me should recognize that my life is a sincere attempt to reflect Revelation chapter 4. That I, without ceasing day and night, worship and serve the Lord forever. The transitional, you take a top and you spin it. The, the, the verse to me that, that this one just transitions perfectly on is Isaiah 57.15. Please turn in your Old Testaments for just a moment to Isaiah chapter 57. In verse number 15. To me it's the perfect transition from Revelation 4. From the first point to our second lesson. Isaiah 57 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one. That inhabiteth eternity. Whose name is holy. He said I dwell in the high and the holy places. With... Him also who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God has two dwelling places. The highest of heavens and the lowliest of humble hearts. Again, Our lives need to be an accurate reflection of Revelation chapter 4. People that know me the best should respect me the most. I cannot worship better than I live. If I am mean to my spouse, I can't come in here. And glorify God. If I mistreat my children, I cannot glorify God in here. If people know that I have a bad work ethic and I'm a weasel, and I'm always trying to weasel out of responsibility, well, that ain't in my job description. I'm not helping that poor lady out. And everybody that knows me knows I'm a weasel with a bad work ethic. There's nothing that I can do in here to glorify God. If I don't treat the least of us like Jesus Christ, there's nothing I can do in here to glorify God. I cannot worship my God any better than I treat my enemies. Jesus commanded us to pray for our enemies. Jesus wants us to love our enemies. Jesus wants us to be good to people. Not because they always deserve it, but because He always deserves it. And if I'm not giving a sincere, conscientious effort to show the love of God to everybody I meet, there is nothing that I can do in here to glorify God I don't have the respect of my peers because I don't earn the respect of my peers. The only thing I'm going to suggest that we can do it here that can possibly begin to glorify God is to beg for forgiveness as we repent of our sins. That most famous verse from the Old Testament, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Look at how all through the New Testament, It tells us where Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love that poetical language of the King James translation in Hebrews chapter 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being, and I don't know that I fully understand this, who being the brightness of His glory. The express image of His person. Who by Himself when He had purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Peter and John didn't crawl up on that cross and die with Him. He did it Himself. Jesus single-handedly redeemed us. And thereby demonstrated the brightness of of God's glory, and we beheld His glory—the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Philip, have I a long time been with you, and you still don't know me yet? He that hath seen the Father hath seen me. And so Jesus and the love that He showed is the brightness of God's glory. I, I don't know how you get more bright, but but apparently Jesus is the brightness. Of God. He's the sparkle on the shine. <laughs> and I don't know exactly what that means, but I know what Hebrews 1.3 says. I think about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're reminded of that same prophecy again. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of God. The question is now, is He seated on the throne of my heart? My heart has but one throne. And there is such an evil tendency within me to continue to try to dethrone my Lord. You ever read Jeremiah seventeen nine? The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can tame it? Who can tame? Who can control the human heart? Therefore, guard it with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You see, one of the glories of us being able to spend quality time together, like we do, is that we have accountability for one another. We help one another. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body and be ye thankful. And then he goes on to say, as he's speaking in the Psalms and these hymns, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Listen, what we do when we come together is we confront one another. We love one another enough to demand accountability. Now, I am of the persuasion, and you are entitled to disagree and be wrong. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. But I guess I really do feel that. (laughs) I believe you need to earn the right to speak. If you don't have a relationship with me, and you don't know me, you're probably not the one to come rebuke and reprimand me. It seems to work best... When that comes from a genuine friend that has earned the right to speak to you. Because you cannot question their motives. Generally speaking, unsolicited advice is with ulterior motivation. Not when coming from your friend. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy deceitful. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. It would be better for a friend to slap us. Metaphorically speaking. Because we know they love us. And wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be great? If we as a body family of believers had such a close-knit relationship that we could qualify to do what Galatians 6 1 says without reservation at all. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Again, I would like to suggest to us, it works best when it comes from someone who has earned the right to speak, namely a dear friend or lover. So Revelation chapter 4 should be emulated in our lives. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 16, we all know. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're not show horses, we're work horses, right? And we have this treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so we recognize that we're earthen vessels, not ornamental vases. What, What do people do with ornamental vases? These expensive, beautiful, decorative Ornamental vases. What do people do with them? They put them up on a shelf and they do not use them. They just look at them from afar and admire them. And hope when the grandkids come they don't throw a rock up there. Or a ball or something else. God has not called us to be ornamental vases. God has called us to be earthen vessels. And what's an earthen vessel? In that day and age it was simply a cheap piece of pot. That could be broken into a thousand pieces. So what does the person do? The one who owns the piece of pottery. You use it and you use it and you use it until it breaks. And when it breaks, you go get another one. The kingdom does not rise and fall with its preacher in the congregation. The kingdom does not rise and fall with one man. The kingdom is bigger than any preacher. The kingdom is bigger than any one person. The kingdom is bigger than an entire congregation. What does God want from us? Wear out, not rust out. I think about James chapter 1 and 25. After he's told us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto the man that beholds his face in the glass. He goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was, but Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, this man being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. May God bless us as we try to hold each other accountable, to help each other, to bless each other, to better reflect Revelation chapter 4 in our lives. May those who know us the best respect us the most because they see His Son revealed in us. Amen? I'm done. To the book of 1st Chronicles chapter 16. There is a statement that I would like to remind us about in 1st Chronicles, chapter 16, verse number 29. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The most beautiful sacrifice that we can ever give to God us ourselves you see we can sing and sound beautiful but if we we haven't given ourselves it doesn't mean anything to God we can pray fervently with 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 such conviction but if we haven't given ourselves what are those prayers unto God we can give of our means there's so many things but if we don't give us He rejects it. The most beautiful offering that we can give our God is ourselves. And when we give ourselves, He's not blinded by how well the song sounds when it comes out of our lips. When we give ourselves, He's not caught up like people are with how long the prayer was or how short the prayer was or how wordy. When we give ourselves, it's perfect to Him. Because He made us. And all He wants from us is us. If you've never obeyed the Gospel and you've never given yourself to God, all of the songs that we sing are B-rate, second fiddle, second class, hand-me-downs at a yard sale. If we've never given ourselves unto God and having our sins washed away as we submit to His will, all of the prayers that we pray are just pocket change. Stuff you'd throw at a coke machine. Wouldn't it be awesome? If we never sang another song, we never prayed another prayer. We never gave another offering till we first gave ourselves to him. Will you give yourself first unto God? If we can help you in that, please respond right now. As together we stand and say.